Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies, because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. No more, Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The, bow, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and rises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He rises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the, will judge the ends of the earth, and he will give strength to the king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went home to Rahem, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Thank you, Albert. I've been reminded several times from the Psalms this morning and how short life is and how even the, the wicked that may seem to prosper is but a breath, and this all reminds us, uh, again, that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's uh, go to him and ask help as we consider his word this morning. Please bow with me. Father, we come before you once again, and Lord, we realize that, uh, Lord, that you are the exalted king, high and lifted up, Lord, and that you have... Uh, even from before the foundations of the earth, Lord, set forward your plans and decrees, even purposing that uh, Christ should come into the world and redeem um, lost man unto himself. And so, God, we, we thank you for uh, allowing us to be caught up in this, this great mystery of the, the gospel that was once hidden and has now have been revealed through Christ our Lord. And I pray as we consider even the uh, the, the words of Hannah, Lord, that she spoke as, 
um, not only relevant to her own day, but also looking forward to the coming of Christ and to the establishment of, of his eternal kingdom. I pray that you would guide us in, in our uh, own day, Lord, that we would have the same sort of confidence and hope and reason for, for praise to your name that we find here in this song of praise. And so, God, I pray you help me to, to speak in a way that is clear and faithful to the, the text of Scripture. Lord, that we can help us by your Spirit to apply these truths to our lives and our hearts, that you truly would uh, work within us this same sort of confidence and uh, assurance that you are a faithful God, that you are the, the King who establishes the feet of your faithful ones, will judge, Lord, the, the wickedness of man and forever establish your anointed one and your king. So guide us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe seated. Thank you. So it'll be our third week and um, planning to the final week looking at Hannah's prayerful song. Can't decide to call it a song or a prayer, so we'll just call it a prayerful song. And uh, it is really uh, such a beautiful example of both. And in this final section, um, and of course, you know, in one sense, the entire um, song ties together and, and uh, is interconnected. But I'm going to focus our attention then this morning, starting at verse 9. And uh, thinking about the phrase that we hear thrown around sometimes, I'm sure you've all heard of it, maybe been accused of it. Uh, that is that you are on the wrong side of history. And many times people throw that phrase around when somebody is going against maybe the, the current flow of the culture. And they, they uh, throw at them that they're on the wrong side of history because they're, they're standing against or standing for something that obviously everyone else is, is uh, opposed to. And I suppose throughout all of redemptive history, there's been this question as to who will be victorious in the end. Who is the truly foolish one? And who is the wise one? Who is the one that will uh, see the, the final victory? And we know that even uh, behind the scenes of all the interactions of man and kingdoms and, and the falling and rising of nations or maybe even individual families where there is hostility or rebellion against God, behind all of that we know there is the ancient serpent, uh, the, the devil who wars against the lamb and, and, and all of those who follow after the lamb. And so we're caught up in this constant struggle. And, and at times maybe our hearts wonder, uh, are we on the wrong side of history? Is our hope unfounded in the Lord? Are we confident in the things that we claim um, or, or not? And I think we learn from Hannah here that there is great cause for praise to the Lord. There is great cause for confidence and assurance as Christians, even when things may immediately seem to be out of control. So we look at Hannah's final uh, cause for praise and worship to God. We have seen so far in this prayer, uh, of course, among other causes, but specifically we've looked at that she is seeing God as her salvation. The, uh, the one who is her, her, her horn is exalted in, the one who is her bedrock of assurance, the salvation that Hannah finds in God. Uh, we've also seen that Hannah praises God because he alone is holy. He's the, the matchless God. There are none like him. There are none beside him. 
And so this is a cause for Hannah to praise the Lord and exalt in him. Last week, we saw that God is the sovereign creator and judge of all the earth. And Hannah praises God as the one who weighs actions. We had the picture of the the balance scale, uh, which God holds the nations upon the balance scale. And he himself will judge and even in time um, exercise perfect righteousness and justice, as Hannah describes here. And we found that fulfilled in many ways in Christ and continuing to be fulfilled as he establishes his church and kingdom upon the earth. So finally then, this morning, Hannah also is praising God because she sees that God will establish his people and his conquering king. She is confident in this, and she speaks of it in a future tense. So we find here that she was speaking in the the present tense, the the reality of God's work, and now she's also looking to the, the assurance that God will guard the feet of his faithful ones, and exercise judgment as the conquering king. And this is a cause for great confidence and praise to the Lord. And she begins this picture, this section, with the imagery of God guarding the feet of his faithful ones. I'm sure you've all experienced at one point or another the the misery of not being able to get around because maybe you've hurt your ankle or you've broken a bone in your leg. And you're unable to to move from place to place freely. Even your daily tasks become very difficult. Uh, Remember something as simple as trying to to get a shower with a sprained ankle becomes uh, almost impossible, it seems. And the importance of our feet to work for us, uh, to carry on with our daily tasks. Especially in Hannah's day, the, the, the feet were essential for travel. They didn't have the luxury of getting into a vehicle and traveling many miles Uh, Perhaps they could ride an animal, but oftentimes in that day, one walked from place to place. And so the the feet are a very important part of of us enabling to get from point A to point B, to carrying on with our daily tasks. Surely we understand the, the importance of our feet and how much we depend upon them. And so Hannah is picking up on this imagery of the foot, not just in a, a physical sense, but that God guards the feet in that as God uh, watches over his faithful ones, that he is providing a means of protection. Uh, he's providing um, an ability to, to finish the journey as our feet are, are guarded. It also refers to the picture of God directing us, directing our steps and our path as we go from day to day. Uh, the past several uh, Wednesday evenings, we've been working through the, the providence of God uh, in the confession of faith. And, and looking at how God is able to work all things according to the counsel of his will. And we refer to this as his providence. And for God's people, this is a, a beautiful, comforting doctrine. That God can work all of the joys of our life in with the struggles and trials. And bring those to our good, for our good, in that we are conformed into the image of Christ. And we are fit for heaven in God working providentially in our life. And so I think this picture uh, of God guarding the feet of his faithful ones is in many ways the image of God's special providence in the life of his children, that he watches over us, 
Even through the valley of the shadow of death, David would say that he fears no evil because God is with him. He providentially is working and directing even there in the valley of the shadow of death. That is the hope and confidence that the Christian ought to experience. This this truth that Hannah is describing. He guards the feet of his faithful ones. And we see this language uh, often throughout the Psalms, especially also in Proverbs, even in some of the minor prophets. This image of God guarding our feet. Uh, Psalm 37, which um, uh, read from this morning, Glenn read for us uh, as, as well. Um, David writes in 23, the footsteps of a man are established by God. He delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because Yahweh is the one who sustains his hand. And so even though we stumble and fall, the psalmist is saying will not be hurled headlong. It will not be a fall to destruction because God is the one sustaining us. He guards our feet. This is a promise and a cause for hope. Or in Psalm 40, David describing this deliverance of God, he says in verse 2, He drew me up from the pit of destruction out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. He put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. So David is describing his former condition uh, in, in, in sin and rebellion as in a pit of destruction, a, a miry bog where he is sinking down and there is no solid footing for his feet. Maybe you've experienced something like that. I know you go up into maybe the hills more and you experience some of the, the muskeg and such where, where heavy equipment has even sunk out of sight. They've had entire, you know, trackos that, that go into some of these uh, areas and, and they don't realize they're on, on bad ground and suddenly the, the machine, uh, you know, starts going down. And I remember when I was working a bit in logging, wondering why they had this little escape hatch on the, the top of the, the ceiling inside the equipment. And uh, apparently it is one of the reasons is we can open up that panel and if your equipment is sinking, you can still escape with your life. And, uh, and, and this is the picture. David said, I was in that place, sinking down. My feet were, were not standing upon anything solid and yet God drew me up from the pit of destruction, put my feet upon a secure rock. And a song in my mouth. This is, I believe, what Hannah is also describing, which all of God's children uh, should find tremendous hope in. He guards the feet of his faithful ones. And this must mean that God also uh, sustains us through trials and difficulty. I don't think this implies that we experience no sufferings in this life or that we experience no difficulty Listen to how Habakkuk in chapter 3 described the Lord's putting him upon a solid place and guarding his feet even in the midst of loss. Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 17. This is one of those passages I think we ought to read often, especially when we look around and we're in a, you know, a crumbling economy, a crumbling country. The justice system seems to be broken. The medical system seems to be broken. And, and we can feel very discouraged. And, and listen to what Habakkuk says uh, and, and then how he finds hope in this promise of God. In chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 17, he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, 
nor fruit beyond the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And, and you may think, Habakkuk, what are you talking about? If everything around you is failing, if the crops have failed, the animals have failed, the, everything is, is falling apart, and yet he says, my salvation, my hope, my, my assurance is in God. And God, even in those times, can, can then lift me up and he, he puts my feet uh, upon the high places. If you've ever seen a, a deer or some of the mountain sheep that are able to scale the, the rocky scales of the, of the mountains, it's, it's incredible. It seems like, like somehow they are defying gravity when they climb up these almost straight edges. And, and, and he's saying that's something like God's provision and protection over the Christian, even when everything may seem to be failing around him. Or as... Paul would say in Romans 8.31, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? That's the sort of assurance that we ought to be cultivating. And I'm not saying it comes easy or naturally. I also battle with anxiety or uncertainties of tomorrow. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to, to live through uh, what maybe our, you know, maybe my grandparents or uh, parents lived through in the 80s with, you know, um, interest rates that, that become out of control and people lose uh, homes and businesses because of, of the, the, uh, the, the, the brokenness of, of uh, you know, that society under... Pierre Trudeau, and now here we are, Justin Trudeau, and it seems we're doing this all over again. Only in our generation, you wonder, like, how do I find confidence and hope in this time of uncertainty? But may we trust, even as Habakkuk would say, or Hannah would say, God guards our steps. He will not abandon his children. He will guide us through as we look unto him. Or maybe you're here this morning and you are overwhelmed with uh, maybe raising young children and you, you wonder how you're going to, to you know, carry on for another day, how you're going to accomplish all the tasks that need to be done. And, and there's a sense of, of uncertainty in that and uh, even maybe at times a cause for despair. And, and I think that the same application comes to continually fix your eyes upon the Lord. Trust he will sustain you today. Let tomorrow worry for itself. Rejoice in the promises of God. Rejoice in the, the sufficiency of, of who he is, that he is our salvation. Maybe as a, a single person, you're you know, just beginning to venture out into the world and you're unsure about the, the many decisions that you must make. You're unsure about, well, who, who, who am I going to marry or will I marry? And, and is God going to, to be with me through all of the various decisions that are before me that I find very overwhelming? We too, and, and you too, must remind yourselves of these truths to, to fix your hope upon the Lord. He has said, I will guard the steps of my faithful ones. He will providentially guide you and direct you as you seek to walk in obedience to his revealed will in his word and you make that a priority in your life. The various decisions and things that are before you, God will guide you and sustain you. This is a tremendous promise 
for all the people of God that should give us strength in all seasons of life. But to those who reject God, who reject his law, who reject his provision of salvation in Christ, they remain at enmity with God. And so Hannah also speaks to the fact that God will vanquish the enemy. His conquering king will execute judgment. Now, Hannah, no doubt, uh, has really no idea exactly what's going to unfold after this point. We will see, in many ways, this immediately begin to unfold in her own lifetime. God will execute judgment upon the house of Eli and the, the wickedness of his sons and their ongoing sin and immorality within the, the tabernacle. God will execute judgment upon the Philistines coming through the king that will be established. And, and Hannah isn't able to fully see all of that and, and certainly isn't able to see how even pointing further down the road of redemptive history, God would establish his one true king, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will vanquish the enemy of sin and death and, and even establish his kingdom and bring all enemies under his feet. Hannah is speaking prophetically in a profound way here. God will establish his conquering king. And this will finally mean in the judgment and punishment of the wicked at various times in history, God demonstrates uh, his, his punishment and, 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 and judgment of the wicked in maybe more of a, a localized manner. We could look at various rising and fallings of kingdoms. We could look at, you know, 70 AD when God brings the Romans and destroys Jerusalem. And these are judgments of God for sure. But there's also this final day approaching, the, the day of the Lord, in which this will be finally realized. And we have to... Be aware of that and, and plead with people to repent, to flee from the wrath to come that God has promised. People today misunderstand the love of God to mean that God is tolerant, that somehow he's just accepting of all people and all views and all religions and all sorts of lifestyles. And that's what it means that God is loving. But that is not a biblical understanding of God or his response to wickedness. You see, God's love is consistent with his holiness and his justice and his wrath and, and his, his, his uh, perfect wisdom and power. And all of these things come together in the one who is God. And so for God to be loving, he must also be just and execute ju judgment upon the rebellious and those who refuse his son. And this is what Hannah is describing. She, she begins to describe the, 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 the fate of the wicked. So he will guard his, the feet of his faithful ones on the one hand, those who trust him and, and love him, walk in obedience to his word. But the wicked, she says, will be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces, and against them he will thunder in heaven. God will punish the wicked. To say that God is simply tolerant of sin is to, to not really know anything of God's uh, true person and, and, and attributes. Of course, he must judge the wicked, either in the crucifixion of his son or in the eternal fires of hell. God will certainly bring about a judgment 
And so when it comes to this matter, there, there's many, uh, many senses in which we must, as it were, stop our ears to the modern philosophies of the age. Sadly, even many who profess faith in God have departed from a biblical understanding of justice and God's judgment. And so we have to fix our eyes upon the word and be instructed by what God has said on this matter. People may want to say, well, I like Jesus. He seems very loving and very gracious and kind. But God, the, the one of the Old Testament, he's very angry and very vengeful. And, 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 and as though Jesus never spoke about judgment himself or the coming day of the Lord. But actually, in many ways, the pictures that we have from Jesus of the coming judgment are even more intense than what we find in the Old Testament, for example, here as Hannah describes it. And this makes sense because in Hebrews 12.25, we find the judgment upon our own generation in some ways more severe because of the light that we have been given. Uh, Hebrews 12.25 says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on the earth... How much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven? So saying if, if they didn't escape judgment with the voice of Moses warning them, how much more will we have the consequence when we reject him who warns from heaven? Christ, the Messiah, who has come down. And he goes on at that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens The phrase, once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, Hebrews tells us, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. And that's in the New Testament. And, and this image of a, a consuming fire, I mean, all spring and summer, we've been surrounded by fires. And some of you have been out to, to fight against these fires, maybe feeling the, the heat of the flames on your face, seeing the, 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 the flames rising above the treetops. And these fires become almost like a storm that is consuming everything in its path, sometimes hot enough to, to melt metal and steel with the heat that these fires are generating. It's a, it's a terrifying thing. We see these, the, you know, the, the helicopters and the water bombers, and they're trying to, to help, but really uh, it's like a drop in a bucket when you look at the, the size of some of these fires. It's overwhelming. We, we uh, you know, long for rain and to, for relief from the smoke, but scriptures tell us this is actually a picture of the wrath of God. And that's not just an Old Testament picture. This is what Jesus also affirmed. And God is saying that in my wrath against sin, in my wrath against the wicked, I am something like that fire that that is consuming everything in its path. The author is saying that the the earth and heavens will be shaken like a a grapevine in the great harvest day of the Lord. It will be shaken so that everything that is temporal, everything that is opposed to God, will come crashing down into the great winepress of God's wrath. And the lifeblood of humanity will be poured out under the weight of God's fury. This is what is coming upon the earth. And in fact, Jesus in Revelation 14, speaking to John... 
gave this picture. He said, another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire, and he called out with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle. Put your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel, we're told, he swung his sickle across the earth, gathered the grape harvest of the earth, and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle, 1,600 stadia. This is a picture of the wrath of God seen locally throughout history in various events, but also pointing us to one great final day of the Lord when the wrath will come upon this earth. It may be in the near future. It may be a thousand years from now. We're not told, but we are told that it will come like a thief in the night. It will come like a robber upon those who do not expect it, and we are to be prepared by finding refuge in the ark of God, which is Christ. And I know we don't hear a lot of preaching about this. I can't say it's necessarily enjoyable to preach about the wrath of God. It's not my favorite subject to, to preach on, but, but we have to look at it. We, we can't be naive Do not envy the godless and their parades and their blasphemies, for the day of the Lord will come, and God has promised it. And Hannah sees it as well, and she she says they'll be broken in pieces. The the picture of of maybe uh, some of you children, I'm sure, at one time or another, even us adults, I'm sure at times, have dropped a glass or a plate, and sometimes, depending on how it lands, it may just break in half, and If it breaks in half, well, there's a temptation to repair it. Maybe I can glue it together, especially if it was something that that mom liked a lot. You know, the classic picture of the the special uh, vase that is broken, and then you have to try and glue it together before mom finds out that I broke it, right? But the, the picture here is not like that. The picture is that they will be so shattered, so destroyed, that there is no mending together. It is this shattering in pieces, like when the, the plate hits the floor and it just explodes into a million different pieces. All that's left to do is to sweep it up and to put it into the garbage. That's the, the, the picture of the judgment that Hannah speaks of. God thundering from heaven. Whenever we find thunder in relation to God, it is in judgment. We find in Revelation that the seven thunders of God, warning of the wrath to come. And so Hannah sees God as the conquering king over his enemies that will establish his anointed one. And so finally, let us consider this incredible confidence that she has in the king of God, the anointed of God, being established. Now remember, there is no king at this time in Israel. This is at the very end of the season of the judges. And uh, I've often thought of um, uh, Samuel as as a final judge. But there's a reference later as well to Eli actually being a form of a judge in Israel. So, so we've come through the season of these judges and they were supposed to deliver the people. They were supposed to bring the people back to God. And while there's seasons of, of maybe glimpses of light throughout the judges, by and large, it would seem that they have failed to truly deliver God's people and to walk 
in righteousness. And yet Hannah is looking even beyond this time of the judges to the coming king whom God will establish and his anointed one. So it, it is, it is uh, remarkable in that these events have not even really begun to unfold. And you may think that, well, wasn't the uh, establishing of the king of Israel a bad thing? I mean, wasn't that something that was negative in their history, that, that they had rejected God as their king? They desired to be like the nations around them. And so they told Samuel, put a king over us. We, we don't want to be you know, under the judges anymore. And, and Samuel was frustrated with them, uh, we will see. So why is Hannah seeing this as a positive thing, as, as something that God has already purposed? And, and this, as we saw in the providence of God, is one of the mysteries of God's providence, that a single event uh, can possibly be wrongfully willed by man and the devil, and yet at the same time willed by God according to his own good purpose. Uh, and this we find in, in various moments in history. And one of the most famous ones in the Old Testament is the story of Joseph, which we've looked at, where he tells his brothers what you meant for evil, what you willed for evil, God willed for good. And, and we find in the providence and the sovereignty of God, his will can supersede the will of wicked men, of, of the devil himself. Of course, in the, the death of Christ, the devil willed that Jesus be crucified. Judas willed to betray him and the Pharisees willed to put him to death in a wicked way. But God over and above that willed that our salvation would be purchased through Christ. Well, I think in a similar sense with the, with the, the monarchy of, of Israel, there's a sense in which, yes, it was initially willed wrongfully by Israel with, with uh, not from faith, but from a, a desire to be like the nations. And yet God also, we see, has a purpose in the monarchy of Israel. Um, just flip back for a quick moment to Deuteronomy 17. Uh, I know that um, if you're working through the, the reading plan that Luke started, we read this uh, not long ago, and it's a very interesting section in Deuteronomy 17, because we find within the law of God, as Moses is speaking to the people, that we actually have mention of a king and that God gave instructions for this very thing. And so we see that it's not outside of his plan to establish the king in Israel. Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, we read, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And then listen to verse 18, a very uh, fascinating instruction that's given for the future king of Israel. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book, a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life. 
that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom and his children in Israel. So God made provision. He gave clear instruction for how the king should be established, what the king must do, what the king must not do. Even in, say, example, the king must not take for himself many wives. Well, that's one of the first things the kings do. And it is indeed their, their, their downfall, as God said it would be. Um, but this is not uh, Hannah seeing something contrary to the will of God. God, in his wisdom, knowing even the, the hearts of Israel, purposed that a king would, in fact, be established And this really sets the scene for the rest of these books, not only 1 Samuel, but 2nd and 1st and 2nd Kings. We find the unfolding establishment of God's king, of his choice in David. But then even as David would transgress the law, we find that Hannah, I believe, is looking not only to a a king from from the, the, the sons of Adam, but She is looking forward to the eternal king because she uses even the word anointed one, uh, which is also very interesting. The the, uh, probably pronouncing it wrong, but the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means the Messiah. God will establish his king and his Mashiach, his Messiah. If you remember at the beginning of the psalm, Hannah prays God uh, who is her salvation, her, her Yeshua. So at the beginning of the psalm, there's a reference to Yeshua, who would become the name of Christ, Jesus, as it's translated into English, our, our salvation, the salvation of God. Now she is also looking to the king who is the Messiah, which is where we get the word Christ, the anointed one. She is looking ultimately to Jesus, the Christ, to come of God. She, I believe, is pointing us forward to the Messiah, not only to an earthly king in David, but he becomes a type of Christ, the true king, whom God will and has established. And so as we are tempted to maybe doubt God's word or have misgivings about his purposes, really all of those doubts and all of those misgivings should melt away in the person of Jesus Christ because we can see the fulfillment of these things. Yes, we are in this already and not yet season. There are aspects of the kingdom yet to be fulfilled in the glorification of all things, in the resurrection of our bodies into eternal life, in the new heavens and new earth. We are still awaiting those things. But the king has come. He has established his kingdom. He has built and is building his church. And his spirit is going forth. The gospel of his kingdom is going out into the earth and bringing about a change in the hearts of men and women, bringing them to Christ the king. He is the Lord of lords. And we ought to rejoice as we look to the fulfillment in what God has done. He is the one full of grace and truth who came not to judge the world the first time, but he said to give his life as a ransom for many so that all who would repent of their sin and come to Christ as King and Lord will be saved from the wrath to come. And he will come again as the conquering King of the universe. It's a marvelous conclusion to this prayer and song 
of Hannah, confident God will establish his anointed king. So let not your heart grow weary. Do not be alarmed at the raging nations all around us. Find refuge in Christ. Rejoice in the promises of God. And even as we close, I thought it would be fitting just to close with uh, Psalm 2 in light of this promise that Hannah is looking forward to. Interesting that then the Psalms, right at the beginning, would have this Psalm regarding God's fulfillment of his anointed king. Psalm 2 verse 1, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will give, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And I pray you are among those this morning who have fled to Christ for the refuge of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins. And I urge you to then also be baptized as the putting on of of that covenant sign, an indication that God has washed you of your sin, that he has, even as we talk with the children, done that work of regeneration in your heart, that you're no longer under the influence of the, the devil in this system, but you are now belonging to Christ. Be baptized and profess your faith to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And let us press on laboring in his vineyard until he returns again. Let's pray and then we will have a closing song. Father, we come to you now and we thank you for, Lord, the the great work of your spirit in the hearts of men and women throughout the ages. Lord, that we don't uh, only look around and see your work uh, in, our, in our own day, which we are grateful for, but we also can look back over the course of history and see, Lord, you working and opening eyes and preparing the way through faithful women like Hannah. And Lord, that where our faith might be established and built upon a sure foundation, not simply upon a wish or desire or a hopeful thought, Lord, but our, our hope is built upon truth and upon the very evidences of your faithfulness and your fulfilled word uh, that you've given through your servants. So guide us, Lord, to be steadfast and movable. Help us to rejoice always in Christ the King, Lord, that we would have that same confidence that Hannah has had, Lord, that you will guard our steps, that we would not be anxious about tomorrow, but rejoice in the promise of your presence as we go. And this we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.
Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.